just saying for endless days we will sing his praise. And one of the things we have probably discovered together is that we've been around people that claim to follow Christ and don't really sing his praise for endless days forever and ever. Sometimes Christians can be really depressing people to be around. And so our text this morning is so perfect for that song because we're going to get into what does it look like to actually just not say it but do it to actually trust God such that when crises come those are events that often knock us off our rocker uh, um, cause us to take our focus off of the Lord how do we how do we navigate that how do we navigate those crises so we can be people that sing his praise for endless days that people see our lives and see Jesus. So we're in Isaiah for a little bit of context where the last three or four hundred years before the 400 year period of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is a time of significant upheaval in the north and in the south, in Israel and in Judah, because there is a constant battle from Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest uh, battling for control of the Middle East. And so for a period of time, the Many nations will align themselves with Assyria when Assyria is the more powerful empire. But the moment Egypt gets up its strength, they bolt um, to revolt against Assyria and to be part of Egypt. And so just going back and forth, subjective to whichever ruler is more powerful at the time, a tremendous loss of independence, a tremendous loss of freedom, a tremendous loss of a national identity. God's people are really... Uh, in the ringer. And so what God does is God sends prophets, messengers, to deliver timely messages of hope, often in moments of crisis, often in in moments uh, of great despair where God's people look around and just feel the weight of defeat. And he sends a message and he sends a messenger to say, I am bigger than those guys. Essentially, my dad is stronger than your dad. And so this message of hope is a repetitive theme. This message of God's power is a repetitive theme throughout the book of Isaiah. And so we're going to look at two contrasting examples of how to respond in crisis. We want to be people who do crisis well. Now, we don't want to be people who invite crisis upon ourselves, but we want to be people who do crisis well because we know to live and to breathe is to be in and out of seasons of crisis, and we don't want our joy taken from us. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Isaiah 7 here in in just a minute, and uh, just a couple things that I think are useful guardrails, useful things to consider when we think about how do we do crisis well. One of the things that we have seen throughout our time in the Old Testament is God has repeatedly shown his power over the natural earth. He has shown his power over creation in the actual creating of it through the flood. So whether it is sickness, health, Uh, The land, the rain, the sun, the moon, all of it is clearly seen to be under his rule. He has clearly shown his power 
over the natural world. He has clearly shown his power over humanity. Whether humanity is obedient, disobedient, whether it's a powerful king or a powerless peasant, whether it's someone who bows their knee to the Lord or someone who is obstinate to the Lord, he has repeatedly shown his power over kings, kingdoms, groups of people, and individual people. And we see that repeatedly as these various kings rise up to positions of power, begin to think of themselves uh, quite high and mighty, and God has to come in and remind them who is, in fact, the king of kings. He has shown his power over the natural world. He has shown his power over humanity. Another one that we have seen repeatedly is he has shown that he is doing his good work even in times when his people don't recognize it as such or even experience it or experience him with the awareness of that good work, that he's doing good even when we can't see it. Uh, Maybe a way to make that clearer is um, it's a good thing for a parent to teach his kids, her kids, how to work hard. And so if I take my kids out and I'm going to teach them how to work hard by teaching them how to chop wood, my assumption is, is they're not going to say, Dad, thanks. This is so great that you have created this occasion for us to learn how to work hard, how to chop wood, how to use a dangerous tool, how to grow in responsibility. Thank you. Is there anything else, Dad, we could do to continue to learn and to sharpen these skills? It would be expected that my kids are going to whine complain that when I say, here's what we're going to do, I'm going to watch the life go out of their body as they go limp trying to get out of doing what I want them to do. But I I think most of us would agree teaching them to work hard is going to pay enormous dividends in their future, even though in the moment they're not going to enjoy it. I think that we would agree me teaching them responsibility, how to follow instructions and to see a project through to completion is a really good thing for them, even if in the moment they don't experience it as a good thing. And so one of the things we have seen throughout the Old Testament is God at work unfolding his good plan in spite of the fact that his time, at times his people don't experience it in the fullness of what he is doing for them. Uh, the last item is just that we tend to not do crisis well. Uh, we tend to not do crisis well. And it's, n- it's not just us. It's virtually every biblical character. Every, uh, virtually every story in some way touches on the fact that we tend to not do crisis well. And the concern that we have about that is that our ability or inability to trust that relationship with God that is um, marked by trust, when that's absent, when trust is absent, the concern is Maybe those episodes of distrust are evidence of a relational fracture. So uh, I've been married for 12 years, much shorter than some of you, longer than others. Uh, But it's enough time to build some experiences and build trust. And if I were to stand up here and tell you that I don't trust my wife, that I have serious misgivings uh, in trusting my wife, you would know right away that something is not going well, that there is trouble in Gobel land. You would know that something is wrong in our relationship because trust is so tightly woven 
into right relationship. And so the concern, not always, but the concern is that episodes of distrust may alert us to relational problems, relational breaks with the Lord. And so we don't want to dismiss the distrust that we feel in our hearts sometimes. We want to see that as a temperature gauge for our spiritual vitality, our trust, our relationship, our closeness uh, with the Lord. So let's jump into Isaiah. We're going to see two examples, first a bad one, then a good one. Our primary text is Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 37. Um, But some of you know that what is written in Isaiah is sidebarred over in the Chronicles and also sidebarred in the Kings. So I'm going to put my finger in Isaiah 7 and then I'm going to jump backwards to 2 Kings chapter 16. I want to tell you a little bit about who King Ahaz is, then tell you about his crisis. Uh, 2 Kings 16, 1 through 3 records the crisis of this, well, records a little bit about this not-so-great king. 2 Kings 16, 1 through 3. It says this, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliel, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's an understatement. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But, verse 3, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Israel. We often wonder, why does God repeatedly instruct his people to drive out the wicked nations in the land when they're coming into the promised land? One of the reasons he instructed them to drive them out because they would become like those nations if they did not clear them out. And so here, King Ahaz has become like those nations to such a degree that it says he offers his own son as a sacrifice to the idol Moloch, and that story is touched on two or three other places in the Old Testament that, that make it clear that that is what he was doing. And so what we see is that he sits on the throne from the line of David, which means this is the line that the Messiah would come from. He's in Jerusalem, God's chosen city, representing uh, the people of Judah, God's chosen people. This is like grandpa starting a business that, that takes care of the whole family, passing it down to son who or daughter who follows the business and provides for their whole family, who passes it down to grandson or granddaughter, and grandson or granddaughter just ruin it, and the business is bankrupt in three months, and everything that they had built is gone. That's who Ahaz is. He's ruined everything. He is a failure corporately as a king and individually as a man uh, before God. Ahaz has aligned himself with Assyria. And so as we get into his crisis in Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to see that two nations to the north are going to come down and they're going to say to King Ahaz, we want you to join us to help us revolt against Assyria. From Isaiah 7, here's a short synopsis of his crisis. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, says, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalil, the king of Israel. So Israel and Syria, two groups to the north. 
came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league or in partnership with Ephraim, that's Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So he's terrified. The people are terrified. They're outmanned. They can't defend themselves. They're powerless before these two other nations that are north of them. They are helpless to defend themselves. So the question is, is when they're helpless, will they turn to the Lord for their help? When they're powerless, will they turn to the Lord as the one who is all-powerful? The Lord sends a message to Ahaz. Ahaz is not worth, has not earned, does not deserve the Lord's attention, but the Lord tends to him anyway. Uh, Continuing in verse 3, it says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. Go to him. He's probably not going to come to us. Go to him. You and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. So there's the first thing. Be careful, be quiet. In other words, don't make a move. Don't act. Pause. I've got this. You don't need to fix this. You can't fix it. What I'm asking you to do is to be still. And he said to him, be careful, be quiet. He says, secondly, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two, and he calls them smoldering stumps of firebrands, these two kings. Um, He says, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romuel, because they have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tebel as king in the midst of it. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. God says, stand with me and you will not stand alone. Stand with me and what they intend to do shall not come to pass. Is Ahaz going to trust the word of the Lord. Is Ahaz going to trust that God is bigger than his enemies? Is Ahaz going to trust that in spite of his unfaithfulness, God is going to be faithful to him and to his people and to his word to provide a continual blessing from the line of David? Uh, Flip backwards to 2 Kings and we'll see how faithful Ahaz is. The Lord gives Ahaz this great message. I've got you. Don't worry about it. Be still and have no fear. And Ahaz says, yes, God, I trust you. The Lord actually offers Ahaz a sign. He says, if you need, ask of me a sign and I will do a sign for you so that you know this is going to come to be. Ahaz appears to be so confident in the Lord. He says, no, I'm not going to test the Lord. I don't need help. I trust you, God, except he doesn't. How many of you know it is so easy to say, God, I trust you, and sometimes so hard to follow through? Easy to say, God, I trust you, really hard to sit and be patient when he said to sit and be patient. Most of us, when any sort of small, medium, or large crisis occurs, go straight into problem-solving mode. Or we freak out. Both of those things happen. Um, But 
many of us go into problem-solving mode. I can do this. I can fix this. There is a solution. I will find it. Watch me if you don't believe me. I can do it. And doesn't culture honor and revere those who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Those who don't give up, right? But get going. And here it's the exact opposite. God says, be still. I've got this. I think for some of us this morning, the message is be still. I've got this. And that will be infinitely harder for many of us than if God said, here's 15 things. Go do these and all will be well. 90% of us would be like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment. God gave me marching orders, 15 steps. God watched me do all those 15 steps. I'm going to pat myself on the back in advance and along the way and at the end. And then your will will be done. God doesn't say that. God says, be still and don't be afraid. Ahaz says, you got it, God. And then 2 Kings 16 uh, records what he actually does. 2 Kings 16, 7 through 9. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilsner, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, up in Israel, and took it, carrying its people and its captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. Did you see what happened here? Ahaz says, yes, I trust you. And then he went and he made his own solution. He said, yes, God, your will, not mine, be done. And then he immediately went to work to create a resolution for his own problems, demonstrating that he absolutely did not trust God. He trusted the might of the Assyrians, not the might of the Lord. He trusted the king of Assyria, not the king of kings. And as Isaiah 7 says, everything would be lost. And so if you're here this morning and you're in the midst of crisis and you're just carrying this enormous weight on your shoulders, trying to fix what's wrong, trying to right uh, past uh, mistakes, trying to navigate a solution that seems incredibly complicated and all the weight is on your shoulders, I would suggest that's not a weight you were supposed to carry. Now, it doesn't mean that if we're looking for a job, we just sit on the couch and watch ESPN and say, well, God's going to provide a job. So if it's all the same, I'm going to get in a good 10, 12 hours of ESPN today because God's going to provide a job. God rarely, if ever, calls us to just pause like that. But I think we know the difference in our heart when we're trying to force God's hand, force a solution, and there isn't one, rather than waiting for God's solution to present itself. King Ahaz seizes the day, refuses to consider that the Lord might be up to something. And I'd suggest to you that, that point number one today is just that crisis always serve some sort of purpose. And when we, like Ahaz, go into problem-solving mode right away in our own strength uh, by natural solutions, uh, we completely dismiss the supernatural element. And I would say even undermine uh, a belief that we might say, uh, believing that God has power over all things. We believe he has power over all things, except when things don't go the way that we want them. We think that we need to fix them for him. 
and we don't. Let's go to Hezekiah. Ahaz is the bad example. Hezekiah is the good example. Uh, Every crisis is an occasion to see God. Uh, Hezekiah is going to show us that. Uh, Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz. Ahaz dies. Hezekiah now is king at about 715 BC, which means that seven years after Israel has been conquered by Assyria. So Hezekiah, even more than his father, now acutely aware that Assyria is a problem. They've captured our neighbors to the north. That wasn't pretty. That was ugly. The tension even rising now in the land, fear of what Assyria is going to do next. In Isaiah 36, we see the king of Assyria send a message to um, King Hezekiah. And the messenger stands out in front of all the people. And the messenger looks up and yells loud enough so that people can hear. And he says to the people, surrender to Assyria. Egypt can't protect you. Your gods can't protect you. And don't let King Hezekiah tell you that they can't. And then the speaker lists all the other countries, all the other nations that they have wiped out and said none of their gods could protect them. What makes you think you're any different? Surrender today. And the speaker actually says we will give you land, we will give you animals, but surrender to Assyrian rule. So the question is, how is Hezekiah going to respond and we're going to see his response in Isaiah chapter 37 and I might add before we read this um, the mess Hezekiah is in is a self-made mess he chose to align with Egypt which made him an enemy of Assyria so the mess that he's in is a function of his failed diplomacy his failed leadership in addition to the fact that he has failed as a man of God. And so some of us will be in crisis because of poor decisions we've made. Some of us will be in crisis because of patterns of sin that we've allowed to go unaddressed. And so we see here in Hezekiah, someone who has been wicked like his father and now finds himself up against it because of the mess he made. Let's see how he responds. Isaiah chapter 37, 1 through 7. It says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and went in to the house of the Lord. So what's his plan? He goes in to the house of the Lord. Verse 2, and he sent Eliakim, who was over his household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah. This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. He says, children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. So let's pause real quick. What's his plan? Go to the Lord. What's his posture? Humility, contrition, and brokenness. He says, this is a day of distress. Obviously, the more insightful comment, this is a day of rebuke. And so I think it's fair to say that what we see happening in Hezekiah is a level of awareness, a level of understanding that he's brought this. The people have brought this upon themselves. 
It is a day of rebuke. The Lord is correcting us. And that is not to say that every crisis, every tragedy, every difficulty is the Lord's rebuke, but it is to say that he can use crisis in that way. Every crisis is an occasion to see the Lord. Isaiah's, or Hezekiah's posture is one of contrition. Verse 4, It may be, he says, that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayers for the remnant that is left. It says, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, sounds familiar, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Verse 7, Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. What is his plan? Go to the Lord. What is his posture? Humility, contrition, brokenness before the Lord. That is the opposite of Ahaz, who is in crisis, seeks to rise to the occasion, to solve the problems, to navigate the difficulty, to make right what is wrong in his own strength or by his shrewd diplomacy. Ahaz says, I can do this. Hezekiah says, I need the Lord. What is the power that he seeks? Not his own power, not Egypt's power, not Assyrian's power. He seeks the power of the Lord. He says, do this because they have mocked They have reviled your name. And and so one of the neat things we see in Hezekiah's engagement with this crisis that even comes out even more full in verse 20 is that he goes from being aware of the pending disaster, uh, the crisis of the attack of the Syrians, and he gets an enlarged sense of what's happening and understands that this is an occasion for God to work for God's name, that his crisis is not just about him. His crisis is not just about Judah. It's about the name of God. And and so there's something that happens in us when crisis strikes of our own doing or not of our own doing, uh, but it tends to make us isolate. It tends to make us very self-focused as we seek how to solve our own problems, as we seek the strength to navigate our own challenges. And rather than make it all about him, Hezekiah sees that it's the name of God who has been mocked. We see that in verse 20. He says, so now, Lord our God, save us from his hand, from the Assyrians, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Why is it so important that we learn how to do crisis well? Why is it so important that we are able to identify when we go about crisis using our own means rather than turning to the Lord? Why is it so important that we understand our own hearts, our own desire to be self-sufficient rather than to be dependent upon the Lord? Verse 20 that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. When we go through crisis, we don't want people to see our solution and say, well done, you really navigated that well. That was a great solution. That was a tough problem. Well done. No, no, no. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord's. Um, 
the following then, the rest of the chapter, is God's response. And so I want to just, at the end, as we wrap up this morning, I just want to walk through the Lord's response, and I hope some of the ways that the Lord speaks into Hezekiah's situation might speak into our situations and cause us to have a greater conviction of who the Lord is, of how he relates to us, even in messes that we've made as we see him near to Hezekiah at this moment. So uh, we're going to start in verse 21 and kind of just slowly work through a few verses here. But the first thing is, is we see that the Lord hears our prayers and that he responds. He hears our prayers and responds. Verse 21 says this, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me, concerning Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria, and then he's going to proceed to outline his plans. Because you have prayed to me, I have heard you, and I am responding. Now, there's a caveat that always has to be mentioned when we talk about the Lord responding. Uh, Everyone, most in here can probably raise their hand and say, yes, I have prayed to the Lord, and he didn't respond how I wanted in the timeliness that I was expecting, in the exact way that I had written down nicely for him to respond. And so there is this disconnect. He's the creator. We are the created. He's unfolding his plan throughout all of history, eternity past to eternity future, and we're this little blip uh, on the radar. So there is a sense where we don't see his fully unfolded work, even though we believe he is active in our lives, even as we live and breathe and speak this morning. But what we see has been a pattern of the Lord hearing the cries of his people. And so if you are in crisis, small, medium, or large, not of your own doing or entirely of your own doing. I hope that you hear from God's response to it, Hezekiah, that he hears and that he responds. Not just hearing, not just responding, uh, but in verse 28, the Lord tells Hezekiah through Isaiah, don't think I don't know what's going on. Don't think I don't know who your enemies are and what they're up to. Don't think that they exist outside of my rule. In spite of what they're doing, I'm still in charge. Verse 28, speaking of the Assyrians, the Lord says, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. I know you're coming out, you're sitting down, you're going in, and you're raging against me. I know those who oppose me. I know what you're doing. I know what you're planning. I know what you're scheming. I know where you've been. I know where you're going. Uh, For many of us, uh, crisis of various shapes and sizes involve other people. They involve other people who are absolutely not submitted to the Lord. Sometimes they involve other people who are submitted to the Lord. Lord says, I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Nothing that the Assyrians do are doing is outside the rule of God. Nothing that they are doing is outside of his scope of power. And so if you're here today, and for you, your small, medium, large, extra large uh, crisis involves other people, it is a pertinent reminder that the Lord knows who they are. He knows what's in their heart. He knows what they're doing. He knows what they're intending to do, and he exerts power. He has sovereign rule over all. 
continuing uh, verse 29, not just does he hear, not just does he respond, not just does he know what's going around. Verse 29, God essentially says, I got this. Verse 29, because you have raged against me, still talking about Assyria, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Does it sound like the Lord is intimidated by the nation of Assyria? Does it sound like he's searching for answers, searching for a solution, that he's circling the wagons with his little executive team and and saying, here's how we're going to come at this. Uh, guys, this is this is the plan for navigating the Assyrians. They've gotten a little bit big. I don't know whose job it was to be looking out over them, but this is a problem, and I'm going to step in, and I'm going to solve it. Nah, he, he's not confused, not overwhelmed. I will put my hook in their nose, a bit in their mouth, and I will turn them back the way that they came. Isn't it true that our problems are absolutely enormous in our own strength, but when we come face-to-face with the power of God, our problems become much, much small as we see his power as big, big, big. And so in crisis, we are most inclined to look around and see our circumstances and have that take our eyes off of the Lord. So that's one of the reasons we encourage home groups. That's one of the reasons we gather for prayer at the end of services is we want to walk through these difficult seasons together because we need people to remind us to put our focus there. We need people to share stories of God's faithfulness so we can be encouraged that he's going to be faithful to us as well. Finally, in verse 35 through 36, we see how this plays out for Hezekiah. Verse 35 says from the Lord, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, all were dead bodies. Because the angel of the Lord goes out and strikes down 185,000 in the middle of the night. Instantly, this big problem becomes a very, 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 very small problem. Hezekiah does not have to send a soldier out to battle. The soldiers of Assyria retreat on their own back to Assyria, never to return under the rule of Sennacherib. And Sennacherib is killed by his boys uh, a decade later or so as he's worshiping an idol in one of their temples you see that this big problem for Hezekiah was no big deal for the Lord. And so I never, never, never and always want to be so careful to not dismiss or belittle the difficulty that exists in our lives and the crisis because they are extraordinary in the weight. Even this morning, first service in this service, so many different types of crisis unfolding in front of us. So many. And so the call is not to belittle or dismiss what is in front of us, but just to see those as occasions where we, as followers of Christ, we have someone to go to who hears and listens and responds and has power over the natural world, over all of humanity, over all that ills us, over all that confuses us, over all that oppresses us. Uh, Isn't it great to be a people who have someone to turn to when that happens? Isn't it great to know that we are not the solution to our own problems? I don't have to fix it. I don't have to make it work. I don't have to come up with that great solution. I don't have to fix all the problems for my family. I don't have to make their lives perfect. I don't have to make everything right. I can't do those things. 
Well, isn't it free to be able to give those things to the Lord? You know, one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Doesn't crisis just undermine peace? Don't, when we lose things, when we get bad health news, when relationships sour, when jobs change, doesn't that just undermine peace? Isn't it a desirable thing to think that peace could be a constant? Maybe that it comes and goes and it, it wanes in a sense that when it, things are difficult, we are fully aware that we are in a spiritual battle. But don't we, don't we want to have God's peace, God's presence, God's purpose all, all the time? Don't we want people, like verse 20 says to God, heal this so that all the nations may know that you are Lord. Isn't, isn't that what we want when people see and look at our lives? If we want that when people look at our lives, we've got to learn how to do crisis well. Got to learn how to do crisis well. If you're here this morning and you're in the midst of it or you're, you're just stepping your foot in the water, you're just stepping into something, or maybe even this weekend, I know some of us have, even this weekend have gotten some really difficult news. I would just invite you to not go into problem-solving mode and try to fix everything that's wrong. I would invite you to pause and to ask the Lord what it looks like to submit your circumstances to Him. Again, it doesn't mean you're just going to be sitting on the couch watching ESPN waiting for Him to work, but but there is a definite there's a definitive difference between us trying to fix everything and us yielding, us submitting, us following, and surrendering those things in our lives and our hearts, those people that we care about, that news that we've just gotten, uh, and submitting that to him and walking the path that he has for us. It feels totally different to walk his path than to try to forge a new trail on our own. And so as we wrap up this morning... I'm going to invite David and the worship team to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a closing song. And as they do that, we'll have a prayer team on each side. And I would just say, if you're here and you've got something that you are trying to trust the Lord with, and maybe maybe you're seeing great progress, maybe you're seeing no progress, it would be a great time just to have someone pray for that with you and be a co-journer, a sojourner, a co-journeyer. There's a word there somewhere. Um, that we would do that together. If you're going through it, someone else has, is, or will, and we desperately need each other. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, uh, we submit, I submit the things that I know are going on in my own heart and life, the things that I know that are going on in, in this group, uh, just this gathering even this morning, uh, uh, the people that are here. Uh, Lord, the, the medical diagnoses that we have received recently that, are, that feel insurmountable and seem to get worse, not better. Uh, Lord, some of the things, Lord, that we have going on uh, with relationships and work, uh, family and fractures, Lord, in those different spheres and the, uh, the sense of crisis, uh, the sense of fear, the sense of uh, potential loss, Lord, the uncertainty of, of really not being able to bring about the good that we want for ourselves and for others. And so we pray that our powerlessness would be an occasion for your purposes and would be an occasion... Uh, for seeing you in a more rich and vivid way as our powerlessness leads way to a greater sense of your power. And even even for those of us in the room, Lord, who have, like, like Hezekiah, have brought upon ourselves the pain and the suffering that we're going through right now. Lord, that's many of us. We brought it upon ourselves. Thank you for being attentive to Hezekiah. Thank you for not saying, serves you right. Uh, We thank you that you draw near and that a crisis can be an occasion for a 180-degree turn, uh, Lord, for those of us who have brought it upon ourselves. 
We thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you, Lord, that you have power over the natural world, over humanity, that you continually do your good, even if at times we don't experience it as such. Lord, help us to do crisis well for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.